I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade, Monday, July 30th, 2012. Okay, yes, yes, maybe yes. Tough narrowing things down to a singular topic today, just saying it. It seems like everything is kind of all over the map right now. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, the the message is being preached. It's not just that they're so shallow. It's that they totally miss the point. I they just they just I mean, they're empty, shallow, totally miss the point. They don't get what the scriptures are about. As a result of it, they're really not helping anybody, and the power is gone. Uh, Y'all remember that uh, phrase, uh, you know, well, maybe I'm dating myself, but Elvis has left the building. I I think it may be accurate to say regarding Jesus in a lot of churches, Jesus has left the building. And I think that uh, in some churches, he was forced out. It was a hostile takeover. And uh, it's just bizarre to me that there are Christian pastors, they call themselves Christians, they are major leaders, they write books, they have people show up at at their conferences, they attend, they speak at other people's conferences, and these are folks that are utterly clueless about who the scriptures are about, and it just, oi, it's, it's so painful to listen to and to watch. And so what we one of the things we do here in fact one of our recurring themes is demonstrating to you how the scriptures are really about Christ. I mean it becomes good news because the proclamation in scripture is all about 
the forgiveness of sins. And you're sitting there going, yeah, well, I know all about that. But do you really know all about that? I mean, if that's your attitude, yeah, well, I already heard about that. You know, somebody told me about the forgiveness of sins, uh, you know, when I uh, made a decision for Jesus or I was at a Billy Graham crusade or something like that. I mean, what do I need it for now? <laughs> it's like, have you sinned lately? You know, let's let's get honest here. I mean, let's take a look at the at the Ten Commandments, and let's just see how your life stacks up. How you how you how you doing there? Keep in mind, God's word, uh, the the law itself, it demands perfect obedience. And if you ain't pulling it off, then um, you need some good news. I mean, think of it this way. Okay. All right. How do I put this? Okay. Uh, let me put it in Olympic terms. Now, those of you who follow me on Facebook and Twitter, plus I've mentioned it here on this on air, that um, I am an Olympic file. Uh, I just I love the Olympics. It's just <laughs> every well, I'm glad they staggered it now. I mean, it's so it's every two years, every two years. It's yes, it's the Olympics. I don't care if it's the Winter Olympics. I don't care if it's the Summer Olympics. I like the Olympics. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. But if you've been following the Olympics, if you've been watching the Olympics, then you've noticed a, a couple of things. And I mean, from all the way from the opening ceremonies, I mean, Mr. Bean was in. <laughs> What's the name? Rowan Atkinson. He, Mr. Bean, was in the. Uh, it was in the opening ceremonies, and he, he was hilarious, and he sure did look old. Okay, and, and Misty May and and and, and, and you know, the the the, uh, the two famous gold medal uh, volleyball play, beach, uh, beach volleyball players for the United States, man, they're looking old. And 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 then you look at Michael Phelps and hi, he he's looking old too. And and you 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 just take take a look at you know the Olympics are all about youth and athleticism and vigor and you know things like that you know and winning and you know and but the the issue well there's a lot of issues but one of the big problem problems is is that uh, this year in the Olympics one of the major themes is that hmm people get old they stop performing at their peak they start to go downhill and well if you can't have this i mean because i mean think of it this way i mean if you listen to a lot of the secret driven preaching that's going on you're supposed to be getting better and better every day in every way i'm getting better and better and then you look in the mirror and you go whoa is that a gray hair and then you go wait i can't see the gray hair because oh, i need my glasses I gotta get a stronger prescription. Now I need bifocals, and 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 then you notice that things don't work quite the same way. And then you know, you get to my age, waking up can be a challenge. I mean, you wake up and you're sitting there going, "Oh, what is that crick?" And oh, the joints—they just—I gotta warm them up in order to get out of bed. It's like, so I mean, in every way, every day, things are not getting better and better. I I get the distinct feeling, objectively, that I'm not getting better. With every every time I go to the eye doctor, I need a stronger prescription. You know, every time I look in the mirror, the the the, the image that comes back, it's getting worse. <laughs> it's just this is not good. There's more gray hair. There's more flab. There's you know, I don't look anything like what I did when I was 18. And in fact, it's pretty clear 
I'm on some kind of a long slide into the grave. This carcass of mine isn't getting better. It's getting worse. And what is all of this? Well, it's the consequences of sin, is it not? See, that's the thing. The wages of sin is death. But see, I'm convinced that death doesn't pay you out all in one lump sum. Yeah, yeah, there's a balloon payment at the end. But I think death likes to sit there and go, all right, you want your wages today? Well, here's a buck. Tomorrow I'll give you five. And, you know, and so the idea with each, so it's like holding out your hand, you know, when you're at the, uh, the grocery store and the lady's counting back your change. You know, there's a five, a 15, 20. There you go. There's your change. And, and it's like that. It's like, it's as if death is just paying you out, you know, one bill at a time. It's like, and you begin to realize maybe those who die young have it better off than the rest of us because here's the deal. Each and every one of us, things aren't really getting better. And then if you really look at your Christian life and you're honest, knowing that the um, the standard is perfect obedience in thought, in word, in deed, in motive, you realize, oh, man, I'm not doing that. Right. So what kind of hope do you have? Is your hope to go and look in scriptures to find relevant tips that you can strip mine the Bible for in order to somehow improve your life? I mean, <clears throat> pardon the expression, but I mean, to me, that just seems like, well, that's about as um, glamorous as trying to put lipstick on a pig. No, It's just not going to work. I mean, Miss Piggy aside, of course, but you get what I'm saying. We are all in a lot of trouble because... In every town, all over the country and in every country, there's graveyards. And there's a grave somewhere. If Christ doesn't return, there's a grave with your name on it. There is literally a hole in the ground waiting to swallow your carcass once you're fully paid out for the wages of your sin. So we need real good news. We need something that really, really gets to the core of our problem here because none of us is here permanently. We're all sojourning here. Here on this planet, there ain't nobody who's getting off this rock alive. And even if you live to be 120, it's not all that long. It really isn't all that long of a time. Plus, you know, you figure if you live to be 120, what's your quality of life going to be from 100 to 120? I mean, you ain't gonna, you're not going to be, you know, you know, an 18 year old running around the planet like an 18 year old. No, you're going to be old, dried up for an extra 20 years. I mean, actually, at 40, if you, I mean, I think a lot of people end it, you know, their, their lives around 80. So you think about that. We're all sojourning here. You're not, you don't get to take anything with you. Nothing. So, um, what hope do we, we all need some good news that addresses the real problem. And the real problem is that each and every one of us is born testing positive for the condition known as sin. And that condition is what causes us to commit sins every day. And when we look in Scripture regarding the, the not only the temporal but the eternal wages of our sin, we realize we need some really good news out there. 
and it's there in the scripture. There really is amazing good news for each and every one of us in scripture. And the good news is not this. Hey, I got great news for you. You want to, you want to, you know, have a life of affluence and influence? No problemo. All you need to do is apply these three easy purpose driven steps to your life that we found somehow by strip mining the scripture and finding principles on how to achieve a life of purpose and influence and affluence. And ta da! A lot of good that's going to do me. I mean, how how long do you think I have to live this life of influence, affluence, and purpose and stuff like that? I mean, I'm in my mid-40s. How much longer do you think I got? I mean, 30, 40 years, 10, 15, who knows? But a lot of good that's going to do me because what happens once I am no longer capable of living a life of purpose, influence, and affluence? Um, my real problem is kind of beyond this life. I, I mean, I don't know if Christ is coming back tomorrow or if, you know, 40 years from now I'm going to die, you know, a, a miserable, painful, you know, slow slide into the grave, you know, in, 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 in some hospice. I don't know. Ne- and neither do you. And that's the thing. Neither do you. But we need real good news, and real good news is found in Scripture because the Scripture is about Jesus. In Scripture, from the Garden of Eden on, we're tracking with the genetic line of the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. Notice the first chapter of the New Testament begins with a genealogy. And most of us, because we're all trained, you know, by, you know, pop culture and, you know, the ADD culture of, you know, of television and, and, you know, instant, you know, messaging and all that kind of stuff. You get to a a chapter where there's a genealogy and you go, skip it, right? Yeah, a lot of good this is going to do. Who cares about who begat what and there and there? And see, the thing is, is that you've already missed the point because there's a reason why the first chapter of the New Testament begins with a genealogy. That's because all of the Old Testament is about that person whose genealogy is finished there in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. It's all about Christ and what he's done for us and what God, because that's who Jesus is, and what God is doing and has done in order to rescue and to save you from the wrath to come. This is good news. And yet this is the thing, this is the good news, the message that isn't being preached in Christian churches. How can you be a Christian church and not preach this good news? How can you be a Christian pastor and not preach Christ? How can you be a Christian pastor and preach yourself? How can you be a church when the messages you're hearing Sunday after Sunday are just self-help, narcissistic pablum? How is that good news? You get what I'm saying? Anyway, all right. Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I obviously have an accent I'm going to grind. Well, we're going to start off today uh, by listening to um, T.D. Jakes talking about living with criticism. Uh, I have literally watched this video four times since, you know, somebody sent me the link to it. And with each passing time that I listen to this video... I realize that T.D. Jakes is saying absolutely nothing. Just absolutely 
nothing. I, it, I'll, I'll let you hear it. I mean, and I mean, see if you can make any biblical sense out of it. But I mean, it, I mean, biblical sense doesn't even seem to. I mean, he's really pumped up. He's screaming and shouting. He's got everybody standing on their feet, clapping and applauding. And my question is, what are they applauding for? He's not saying anything. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you hear it. Then what we're going to do after that, I'm going to switch gears, and I'm going to be reading a um, a blog post uh, from the Theo Neustas blog. Um, John uh, Jonathan Graham is the author, and uh, he recently visited New Spring Church, and uh, would like to let. You know, I'm going to read to you uh, his experience at New Spring Church, and he's noticing the same things I'm noticing. They're worth passing along. And then what we'll do is we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to go to. Uh, our next segment on the Circle Maker book, and we're going to ask the question, what's your Jericho? Now, what I've decided to do with this, and I've been sitting on this segment for a while because the the question is, how best do I demonstrate just how far off point uh, Mark Batterson is with his mishandling of this text? And then it's it occurred to me. I figured it out, and here's what I'm going to do, Okay. For this segment of our review of the Circle Maker, the What's Your Jericho, we're going to take a look at how he allegorizes the text. And by allegorizing, it makes it about you. And by making it about you, completely misses the point. What I'm going to do is we're going to go back into ancient church history. And I and I mean that, ancient church history. I think I got Chrysostom. I got Maximus of Turin. I, I, anyway, I have to look at the list. Um, I, I got Clement of Rome. I, what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to, I've done the research, pulled the quotes out, and we're going to read uh, Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And along the way, I'm going to read to you relevant snippets from the sermons and writings of the, and I mean this, ancient church fathers on how they handled this text. And when you see what they did with this text compared to what Mark Batterson is doing with the text, you'll go, oh, boy, those ancient church fathers really understood what the scripture was about. And Mark Batterson seems um, clueless. Exactly. And then to round out the program, hour number two, we're going to be listening to Albert Moeller's uh, uh, conference speech from the 2010 Resolved Conference entitled The Lamb Who Would Be King. The Lamb Who Would Be King, which I think is just the the big red bow on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith that kind of makes the whole point. If you you haven't figured out the theme, by the way, every edition of Fighting for the Faith does have a theme. I don't normally bring it to the surface, you know, in like a clear way. I'm always working it behind the scenes, trying to work it inductively. But this one is really talking about who is the scripture about and how churches today are completely missing the point because they're reading themselves into the scripture. And by doing so, they're robbing Christ of his glory. And by doing that, they're robbing sinners of the comfort, mercy, and grace that comes from the biblical gospel and the real person whom the scriptures are about. It just, it's unbelievable. Anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And because we're doing a, um, a T.D. Jakes update, that requires me to do this.
the uh, Pet Shop Boys, a blast to the past there, uh, and their song entitled Opportunities, Let's Make Lots of Money. All right, so that's our uh, update music when we're doing a televangelist update, and one of the, uh, well, premier televangelists out there is Bishop T.D. Jakes, and uh, he's got the uh, Potter's House Live, that you know, these little snippets that he puts on his uh, Vimeo channel there on Vimeo, and the, well, one of the most recent ones from uh, July 22nd is entitled Living with Criticism, and see if he actually says anything substantive here. Uh, listen, and here's T.D. Jakes. Respect, my friend, is never given, it must be earned. People don't respect you just because you take a title or, or because you sit behind a desk or because you open up a business or because you start a company or because you start a ministry. People don't respect you just because you wear a certain outfit or you put a hat on your head. People respect you when you can take a licking and keep on ticking. Mm, so people respect you when you're a Timex. Got it. And stand for something. What exactly uh, are they supposed to stand for? I'm on a mission, okay. and if I'm on a mission, I'm going to have to make some waves, and if I'm on a mission, I'm going to have to step on some toes, and if I'm on a mission, I'm going to have to get on somebody's nerves, and if I'm on a mission, I have to be tough enough to hear what you said and still see my purpose and not be distracted by what you said and keep on doing what I was created to do. Uh huh. Does this make any biblical sense to you? It doesn't make any biblical sense to me. I mean, but boy, he sure does deliver it passionately, though, doesn't he? But don't you think God sees you? Don't you think God sees you amidst all these people in this room? Do you think God don't see you? Well, yeah, and how's that good news? Sees you. Well, that's great. Yeah, and he's going to see a lot of people on the Day of Judgment, too. That's, you know, just being in God's sight, that doesn't necessarily equal good news. He sees your circumstance. He sees your tears. He's yes, and your circumstances and tears may be a result of your sin. He sees your misfortune. He sees your predicament. He sees you. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to describe it. He sees you. My God, there's something that if you knew about yourself, it would change your whole life. There's something about yourself that if you knew it would change your whole life? Huh? So I, I'm really special, apparently. I, I had no idea. I mean, I thought I was a sinner saved by grace, but... Yourself, it would change your whole life! I'm wondering if there's somebody in here living off the old information. 
wondering if you're living off of outdated information. I wonder if your files need to be updated so that you can realize who you really are in the kingdom. So your files need to be updated so you can realize who you really are? Um, who am I? Um. I'm wondering if you're going by an old database, and I'm wondering if you've got... Yeah, again, I mean, what does any of this mean? I mean, he's got the entire Potter's house on their feet. Everyone's hooping and hollering and clapping and just soaking it in like they're somehow receiving, a you know, breadcrumbs from the table of heaven. And um, I'm hearing a whole lot of nothing. You know why? Because I ain't hearing about Jesus. I'm hearing a, somehow I'm the bee's knees, and that's not the message of Scripture. <laughs> Believe me. I ain't the bee's knees, and neither are you. I earned this. Yeah, see, when I look at Scripture, um, salvation's a gift. And if I think I've earned anything, then the thing I've really earned is hell. After all I've been through, I got a right to be happy. After all I've been through, I got a right to be happy? Huh? I'm not gonna let no devil in hell take this joy away from me. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise continually be in my mouth. I want somebody to give God a radical praise. Uh, for what? All right, well, there's the video. That was uh, kind of a whole lot of nothing and uh, reminds me of a passage in Scripture. Um, here, let me read it to you. Second Timothy chapter three, verse one. Understand this: that in the last days there will come difficult times, for people will be lovers of self. By the way, this is one of the key things to look for regarding the last times. You know, the thing we've been chronicling for a while here at Fighting for the Faith. We we ended up coming up with a name for it. Narcissistic eisegesis, and the term, you know, gets squished down to narcissus. Okay, narcissus. Okay, that's the, you know, it's a, that's a title that comes from Greek mythology. The guy who fell in love with himself. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, um, narcissism, narcissistic eisegesis. So keep this in mind. In the last days, there will come difficult times for people will be lovers of self. They will be narcissists. Lovers of money. Sound familiar? Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, 
reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. By the way, this is in the church. This is what goes on in the world all the time. It's just now being brought into the church. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Yeah, the way I read Scripture, Scripture tells us to avoid such men as, well, T.D. Jakes. All right, moving along. From the Theonoustos blog, which you can find at johnnyis.tumblr.com, G-O-H-N-N-Y-I-S.tumblr.com. The uh, headline reads, My Visit to New Spring Church. Uh, Jonathan writes, he says, um, I have in the past posted various critiques and complaints about Perry Noble and New Spring Church. Many messages that I've received have been along the lines of, quote, well, if you weren't there, you can't actually say what happened. <laughs> uh-huh, etc. This morning, my father and I took a visit to New Spring Charleston so that we could witness firsthand what all the hype is about. Upon parking, you are met by a literal gauntlet of greeters. I was greeted at least ten times before I got to the door. New Spring Charleston rents out part of the North Charleston Coliseum, and from the moment you park, they begin directing you into the building via a human aisle. Clearly, Perry knows how to motivate people to volunteer. These folks are up early to load everything into the venue. They stay up late to load everything out. That kind of dedication is certainly impressive, and I commend them for it. Perry Noble himself was visiting the Charleston campus today. I was going to try for a picture, but I was unable to catch him. He's both taller and skinnier than I had imagined from the videos online. Worship consisted of a typical alt-rock six-piece. It was well-mixed, well-performed. The lighting was clearly cued well. The whole performance flowed smoothly. I want to stress the word performance. It was a rock show. There's no getting around that. The question... I have is when we sing Exalted One as a congregation, who should be the Exalted One, Jesus or the guitarist who can rip a solo? Now, clearly, I'm not saying we shouldn't play skillfully, but there is, isn't there a difference between performance and worship in spirit and truth? Great question, Jonathan. He continues, The sermon wasn't delivered by Perry, but by Brad Cooper, the student director for New Spring Church. The sermon was entitled, The Other Side. The text was Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, calms the storm, and heals the demoniac of the Gadarenes. This is really a beautiful passage, and for a while, Brad Cooper was expounding well on the depth of the text. Just as God brought Joshua into the promised land from the Gadarene side of the Jordan and so fulfilled his promises to his people, so Christ crossed back over the Gadarenes, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to those who dwelt in darkness, and so fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. So far, so good, right? This passage has so much power in it that I was nearly drawn to tears as the word was read. My Jesus commanded the winds and the waves, and they obeyed their creator. My Jesus commanded the legion, and they had to ask his permission to even enter animals that were unclean. My Jesus delivered a man from his sins for the glory of God. My Jesus went and turned the entire economy of a town upside down with a simple visit. My Jesus is glorious. But Brad Cooper as accurate as his initial exegesis was, did not reach the same conclusions about his Jesus. 
Brad Cooper's conclusion from the text was that since Jesus did all this in pursuit of one man, we should go and invite everyone to New Spring's coming house party series. He turned the text from ultimately pointing to Jesus as the Messiah to pointing to New Spring as a church. I was so pained to watch Jesus made so little of and to see New Spring Church made so much of, to watch sin be completely ignored, to hear Jesus cheapened to nothing but a panacea for symptoms of sin rather than the disease itself. What would possess someone to preach a sermon so devoid of power? My point in writing all of this isn't to oppose Brad Cooper or Perry Noble or New Spring Church. It's to make an appeal to them. Please, re-examine your ministry in light of the scriptures and see if what you teach is truly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God. I am nobody. I just have a blog on the internet, and I don't live in my parents' basement. But Jesus is somebody. Jesus is glorious. He will be glorious whether it's in your obedience or in your disobedience. New Spring, if you read this, understand it to be an encouragement. You have such zeal. It's truly inspiring. But don't forget that zeal must be for the things of God or it's worthless. And the things of God are found in the person of Christ. Make Christ your focus. In Christ. Johnny. Well said. I think that gets right to the point, don't you? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Pitching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun-stand-still prayer? 
Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. you make the Bible about you and not Jesus, you miss the point. You leave people dead in their sins and you along with them. Just saying. And just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And the more crew members we have, uh, the more we can predict what our, our you know what monies we're going to take in every month so that we can budget things. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, keep in mind, we are still in the middle of our summer bake sale, leg number two, um, uh, where you can get your own Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt designed by uh, Pastor Price of Trinity Church of Northwest Arkansas. Fantastic work that he's done there. You can either get them in gray or white, and uh, they're selling like hotcakes. And so if you haven't already got yours, visit 
piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and get yours today. And of course, you can still get a copy. You can still get your own uh, homemade bracelet, a uh, handmade bracelet by my made by my mother-in-law. There's a link right there on the bake sale page. So if you haven't picked those up, please do. It helps us get through the uh, lean, mean, financially thin summer months. So, um, you know, just, you know, again, thank you for your support. We can't do what we do without your help. All right, moving along here. Here we go. Got a Mark Batterson update. Want to continue working through the um, circle maker. If you listen to Fighting for the Faith, you're probably going to get a healthy dose of 80s music because that's about as up to speed as I am on current pop culture. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, yeah, that's to kick off our discussion of the Circle Maker. Now, what I'm going to do here, just I, I, I talked about this at the opening of the program. I want to make sure you know what I'm going to do. So, so here's the deal. It's been, it's been a couple of weeks. Number one, I was on vacation, but it's been a few weeks since we've really done a circle maker update. And I've been working my way through the audio book and want to demonstrate really kind of the key problems here. We've already demonstrated in previous installments that we got a big problem because this completely goes off the rails because he's teaching something from the book of legends. Uh, the story of Choni the circle maker is if Choni the circle maker has something that he can really offer us when it comes to understanding prayer. But uh, Choni's uh, uh, approach to prayer is way different than, well, what Jesus taught us to pray, which is to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. You know, things like that. And what we've noticed is, is that you know, one of the things I pointed out is, is that Batterson makes claims about God, you know, cl- claims regarding what God in- expects of us that are just not in Scripture. You know, God, you know, if God's insulted by tiny dreams and small prayers and stuff like that, yet Jesus tells us to pray for such tiny things as daily bread. You get what I'm saying? So there's a big disconnect. Now, it, it, from that disconnect, it just snowballs out of control into like a huger and huger big ball of heretical apostasy that has nothing to really teach the Christian church regarding Christian prayer. And the next section in chapter three it kind of lays this all out, and it's the classic allegorizing and missing the point of the story of Jericho. And so I was debating with myself, self, how can I best, <laughs> how can I best demonstrate just how off this was? And and you know, and I've done different techniques, you know, to do that through the years here at Fighting for the Faith. And then it dawned on me, you know what would be a good idea here, is to go back in church history. 
And let's look at how those in the ancient church, and what we'll do is we'll we'll take a look at like Clement of Rome. I think he's late first century, early second century. We'll go into the fifth century, sixth century, and take a look at how faithful pastors, uh, these are men who are known for their uh, their boldness in preaching the gospel in the ancient church, how did they handle this text? And so what that's going to require me to do is to, number one, teach um, you know, uh, Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6, because the two are intricately linked. You, you kind of miss uh, you know, one of the major themes of the, of the story of Jericho if you don't look at it with chapter 2 in mind. So I'm going to preach 2 and 6. It's not that uh, 3, 4, and 5 are not important. It's just that when we're looking at the overall Jericho story, I think those two need to be bookend here for this teaching. And then I'll interweave it with uh, uh, with teaching from, let me take a look at my list here, Christostom, Cyril of, Jer- of Jerusalem, uh, Clement of Rome. Um, I think I've got uh, Maximus of uh, Turin. Yeah, I got Maximus of, of Turin in here. So we'll take a look, just do a simple sampling of some of the guys of ancient history and how they handled this text. And when you look at what they've done with this <laughs> in their preaching, you'll go, "Oh, I get it." That's that's the idea. Is it use these different? It's like when you see how <laughs> how they drive the gospel home through this text is just absolutely remarkably amazing. And I'll even give you some good cross references along the way because when we look at the story of Jericho, something to keep in mind: the story of the Exodus and then the taking of the Promised Land is a type and shadow of the Christian life and the judgment to come. So Jericho stands as an archetype, if you would, of the coming judgment of the earth. Okay, It stands as an archetype of the coming judgment of the earth on the day in which Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. That's what it stands as. It's it's a type and shadow of judgment day, of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so I'll, I'll give you some good uh, cross-references along the way. But, but in order to kind of set this up right, I'm going to do this backwards from the way I did it last week. Last week I would teach the text, and then uh, after teaching the text, I would uh, uh, you know go in and, and let you listen to how somebody n- mishandled the text. Today we're going to do it backwards. We're going to listen to uh, Mark Batterson mishandle the text. And after he's done mishandling the text, we'll go in, read the text, uh, Joshua 2 and uh, and Joshua 6, and interweave it with these good ancient preachers, uh, you know, which are gifts to the church. If you, you know, I got to tell you, you know, if you are just a little bit iffy about reading the church fathers, there are some really, really good ones you ought to read. Clement of Rome, I think of uh, Tertullian. Uh, Irenaeus, although Irenaeus' is a book against the Gnostics is, is really ponderous at parts. Um, you know, you, you think of Augustine, I, I think of Christostom. I mean, yeah, these are just great guys to read. And believe me, it helps because you sit there and go, oh, wow, look, the guys in the ancient church are confessing the same faith I confess. Now, now if you're going, wait a second, they're not confessing the same faith, then the issue is you, not them. Just trust me on that. You you remember the old uh, George Costanza line? It's me, not you. Um, yeah, it, it works backwards. When if you if you're confessing a faith that's different than the ancient church, 
And keep in mind, this is pre-Pope. This is pre-medieval uh, Roman Catholicism. If you're confessing a faith that's different than theirs, the problem is you, not them. It's you, not them. And so you, you need to spend some more time in Scripture and understand how do they come to these conclusions regarding the things that they're preaching. And you might go, I, I get it. Now, does that mean that they're without error? No, they're not without error. Uh, the, the, every era of the church has its own eras. It's just every era of the church makes different mistakes. That's all I'm going to say. And it, by becoming good and fluent and conversant in ancient church history, and you understand that each era makes different mistakes, it helps you understand the mistakes we're making right now. Because this era of the church is making a completely different set of mistakes than the church did in ancient times. So just, you know, I'm just saying that. So without any further ado, here is Mark Batterson, chapter three of The Circle Maker, and he's going to explain to us the, the story of the fall of Jericho. Here we go. Jericho March. The first glimpse of Jericho was both awe-inspiring and frightening. While wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the Israelites had never seen anything approximating the skyline of Jericho. The closer they got, the smaller they felt. They finally understood why the generation before them felt like grasshoppers and failed to enter the promised land because of fear. A six-foot-wide lower wall and 50-foot-high upper wall encircled the ancient metropolis. The mud-brick walls were so thick and tall that the 12-acre city appeared to be an impregnable fortress. It seemed like God had promised something impossible, and his battle plan seemed nonsensical. Your entire army is to march around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you are to march around the city seven times. Joshua 6, 3 through 4. Every soldier in the army had to have wondered why. Why not use a battering ram? Why not scale the walls? Why not cut off the water supply or shoot flaming arrows over the walls? Instead, God told the Israelite army to silently circle the city. And he promised after they circled 13 times over seven days, the wall would fall. The first time around, the soldiers must have felt a little foolish. But with each circle, their stride grew longer and stronger. With Notice the eisegesis. He's inserting details into the story that are not in the biblical text. With each circle, a holy confidence was building pressure inside their souls. By the seventh day, their faith was ready to pop. They arose before dawn and started circling at six o'clock in the morning. At three miles per hour, each mile and a half march around the city took half an hour. By nine o'clock, they began their final lap. In keeping with God's command, they hadn't said a word in six days. They just silently circled the promise. Then the priests sounded their horns, and a simultaneous shout followed. 600,000 Israelites raised a holy roar that registered on the Richter scale, and the walls came tumbling down. After seven days of circling Jericho, God delivered on a 400-year-old promise. He proved once again that his promises don't have expiration dates. And Jericho stands and falls as a testament to this simple truth. If you keep circling the promise, God will ultimately deliver on it. What is your... By the way, that's law. That's not gospel. Okay, you got to circle the promise, and then when you do that, God will eventually 
deliver on it. I mean, that's his his claim. Let me back this up a bit. I just want you to hear him say this next thing in context. Here we go. What is your Jericho? This miracle is a microcosm. It not only reveals the way God performed this particular miracle, it also establishes a pattern to follow. It challenges us to confidently circle the promises God has given to us. And what would those promises be? So so Jericho is somehow a microcosm. You, it's, a, it's a pattern for you to follow. This is a how-to book. So how do you conquer the impossible? Well, you circle the promise the way the Israelites did. See? So what's your Jericho? Complete allegory here and totally missing the point. And it begs the question, what is your Jericho? For the Israelites, Jericho symbolized the fulfillment of a dream that originated with Abraham. Really? Okay. Abraham. It was the first. So it was Abraham's dream to no. The first step in claiming the promised land. It was the miracle they had been hoping for and waiting for their entire lives. What is your Jericho? What promise are you praying around? What miracle are you marching around? What dream does your life revolve around? Drawing prayer circles starts with identifying your Jericho. Hard to listen to. Jericho. You've got to define the promises God wants you to stake claim to, the miracles God wants you to believe for, and the dreams God wants you to pursue. Ah, so you got to identify the dreams God wants you to, to pursue, the miracles he wants you to pray for. Yeah. Where do I find all that? Then you need to keep circling until God gives you what he wants and he wills. That's the goal. Now, here's the problem. Most of us don't get what we want simply because we don't know what we want. Uh. We've never circled any of God's promises. We've never written down a list of life goals. We've never defined success for ourselves. And our dreams are as nebulous as cumulus clouds. Uh-huh. And the story of Jericho somehow demystifies all of that. Really? Instead of drawing circles, we draw blanks. Circling Jericho. All right. So that's Batterson talking about, you know, what's your Jericho and circling Jericho? Now, how do we demonstrate? How do we unpack this and basically show this is not what this text is about. The story of, Je- of Jer- the fall of Jericho is not about giving you a pattern so that you can circle promises and try to figure out what God wants to do in your life for anything of the sort. I mean, that's just a complete disconnect. So let's go way back in time. Now, I'm not going to use our uh, pirate Christian radio time machine um, to do this. We're just going to go back into the text. And what we're going to do is we're going to start with the text itself, and then I'm going to interweave into it uh, some you know, some quotes that I found while doing some research over the weekend uh, <clears throat> that I thought would help us. Okay, So if you have your Bible, open up to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. If you, he, yeah, if you look at 6 without 2, you miss something really key and critical. Let me read... Uh, the first 11 verses. Here's what it says. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight and, uh, to search out the land. 
Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order uh, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the, for, as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to those kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. I'm going to pause there for a second. Notice the confession of faith. She has just confessed Yahweh, the one true God, to be God, the God of heaven and earth, right? This is a confession of faith. Here's what Christostom says in his homily on repentance and almsgiving. He says, Do you see how with faith she, that's Rahab, takes on her lips the word of the lawgiver? And I realize that your God is up in heaven and down on earth, and apart from him there is no God. Rahab is a prefigurement of the church. Now you'll notice who he's going he's gonna to draw a connection. Type and shadow, he's drawing a connection between Rahab and the church, and the connection is actually solid. It's not a, it's not a straight allegory. It's a type and shadow where he's, where he's going to say, listen, the church is just like Rahab because here's the deal. Rahab is a sinner saved by grace, just like the church is, okay? So Rahab is a prefigurement of the church, which was at one time mixed up in the prostitution of the demons, which now accepts the spies of Christ, not the one sent by Joshua, the son of Nun, but the apostles who were sent by Jesus, the true Savior. I learned, she says, that your God is up in heaven and down on earth, and that apart from him there is no God. The Jews received these things and did not safeguard them. The church heard these things and preserved them. Therefore, Rahab is a prefigurement of the church and is worthy of all praise. That's how Christostom handled this text. Cyril of Jerusalem, here's what he writes, um, and this is from his catechetical lectures. He says, Pass now, pray to the others who were saved by repentance. Perhaps even among the women, some will say, I have committed fornication, and I've committed adultery, and I have defiled my body with every excess. Can there be salvation for me? See, Christosom here is drawing an application from Rahab, the prostitute, to each and every one of us, right? Who among us cannot say that we have not committed sin, even of this kind, right? Either you haven't taken care of your body sexually or haven't cared for it by overeating, <clears throat> or, you know, things, you understand what I'm saying? So here, 
Cyril of Jerusalem says, Pass now, pray to uh, to the others who were saved by repentance. Perhaps even among the women, some will say, I have committed fornication or adultery, or I have defiled myself with every excesses. Can there be salvation for me? Fix your eyes, woman, upon Rahab, and look for salvation for yourself too. For if she who openly and publicly practiced fornication was saved through repentance, Will not she whose fornication preceded the gift of grace be saved by repentance and fasting? For observe how she was saved. She said only this, Since the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below your God, she said, for she did not dare to call him call him her God because of her wantonness. If you want scriptural testimony of her salvation, you have it recorded in the Psalms. I will think of Rahab and Babylon among whose among who know me. The salvation procured by repentance is open to men and to women alike. Do you think God can't save you? Well, he can. Look at Rahab. He saved Rahab. There's her confession of faith, the prostitute confessing the one true God. And who does she become? Well, Matthew chapter 1, remember I told you it's an important chapter of Scripture. Listen to what this says, starting at verse 4. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Not only was she saved and her sins forgiven and her fornication, her adulteries and her prostitution washed by the blood of the Lamb, she, even in her womb, gets to give birth to a direct descendant of the Messiah herself. Talk about mercy. This is just such an amazing story. Now let me continue reading. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, this is Rahab, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Notice, okay, the, okay, folks, this is such a great picture. This is a picture of the judgment day itself, okay? If you are here on the day of Christ's return, you are as safe as Rahab and her family were in the, she had a res, an apartment in the very walls of Jericho, the very things that fell, okay? And she survived and her home was intact because of the kindness and faithfulness of God. Verse 15. So then she let the spies down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made with us. 
Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and your father's household. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. The scarlet cord sounds so eerily like the blood on the lintel of the door on the night when the children of Israel were ultimately set free from captivity in Egypt on the night of the Passover, right? Scarlet cord, blood red on the lintel. You remember the movie, um, uh, what was it, The Sixth Sense? If you've watched that movie a few times, it's actually very well done. It just it, you know, I don't think he's, M. Night Shyamalan has done anything even closely approaching the brilliance that he had with that movie. One of the things you'll notice in that movie is a red theme. Okay, scriptures have a similar thing going on here. The red blood on the lintel of the door on the Passover, the scarlet thread, the scarlet rope in the window of Rahab the prostitute. Okay, here's what Clement of Rome wrote about this. Here's what he says. For her faith, this is for Rahab, for her faith and hospitality, Rahab the harlot, the prostitute, was saved. For when the spies were sent forth into Jericho by Joshua, the son of Nun, the king of the land perceived that they were coming to spy out his country, and he sent forth men to seize them, that being seized they might be put to death. So the hospitable Rahab received them and hid them in the upper chamber under the flax stalks. And when the messengers of the king came near and said, The spies of our land entered into your house, bring them forth. For the king so orders. Then she answered, The men the men truly whom you seek came to me, but they departed immediately and are journeying on the way. And she pointed out to them the opposite road, and she said to them, Without a doubt, I perceive that the Lord your God will deliver the city to you, for the fear and the dread of you has fallen upon its inhabitants. When, therefore, it shall come to pass that you take it, save me in the house of my father. And they said to her, It shall be so as you have spoken us. Therefore, when you perceive that we are coming, you shall gather all of your folk beneath your roof, and they shall be saved. For as many as shall be found outside of the house shall perish. Moreover, they gave her a sign that she should hang from her house a scarlet thread, thereby showing beforehand that through the blood of the Lord there shall be redemption for all them that believe and hope on God. You see, dearly beloved, not only faith but prophecy is found in this woman. That's Clement of Rome. Joshua chapter 6 now. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and its mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, and the people will go up, every one straight before him, so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua 
had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out from your mouth until the day that I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. The priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned to camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Stop. Again. This is a type and shadow of the coming day of judgment. Make no mistake about it. Let me read this again. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and, and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all of the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go, this just kills me. Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. And so the young men who had been spies in and who went and spied in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all of her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and the iron they, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And folks, when you read this in Hebrew, 
it's it's really hard to not see this as Jesus saved her alive because that's Jesus's name. Every time you see the word Joshua in this text, Yeshua, that's the Hebrew name that our Lord and Savior went by. I mean, I can't, I cannot read this passage without saying Jesus saved her alive because that's who really saved her. The connecting points of the gospel here are so clear. This is a, this is this picture of salvation in the day of judgment, right? And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom God sent to spy out Jericho. Now, I love I love what Christostom did, where he likens the spies to the apostles themselves. The the apostles, the 12 apostles, those are the spies whom Jesus sends, right? And we hide them like Rahab does when we hear the message and receive the message that they bring to us, that they tell us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who bled and died on the cross for your sins and mine. It is so absolutely beautiful. I mean, to preach the gospel from this text takes little or no effort. You just have to know what the gospel is and what to look for. Okay? She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at this time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, before I read to you how some of the, the preachers of the ancient church handled this text, I want to give you some cross-references here. Okay? When we read this Joshua text, again, this is a true type and shadow of the day of judgment, okay? With some of the details that are just too, they're, they're too parallel to be coincidences. Let me read to you. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Notice the day of judgment comes with trumpets, right? Matthew twenty four thirty one, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heaven to the other. Okay? Matthew 24, 31, with the trumpet call, gathering his elect. Is that not what we saw with Rahab the prostitute? On the day of, tr of judgment for Jericho, loud trumpet call, and his elect were brought forth safely and alive from Jericho. Matthew twenty four thirty one is a direct cross reference to this passage. 
Let me give you one more, kind of a scary one. Joel chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. You can go and read it more in context if you'd like. Okay, But again, this is the prophet Joel giving us a picture of the day of judgment. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? I think this imagery here of the Lord and his army on the day of judgment is paralleled perfectly in type and shadow right there in the story of Joshua and Jericho, right? Now, I promised I would read to you a couple of, uh, a, a few more of the ancient church preachers, okay? Maximus of Turin, okay? Uh, from his sermon 93, here's what he says. The walls of Jericho fell down on account of the priestly trumpets because they contained within themselves a sinful people. That would be Jericho. A battering ram did not strike it, nor did a machine of war storm it, but what is remarkable, the terror of the priestly sound brought it down. The walls that stood impervious to iron collapsed at the sacred voice of the trumpets. Who would not be amazed that when the sound had been made, stones were broken to pieces, foundations were shattered by the noise, and everything collapsed in such a way that although the conquerors did not injure their own forces, nonetheless among the enemy, nothing remained standing. But although no one touched those walls still, they were taken from without at the sound of the righteous while sinners dwelled within. For this reason, then, they gave way, lest they offer resistance to the ones or somehow protect the others. To the righteous they opened a path, and to the faithless they denied protection. Therefore, brothers, if the sound of the priestly voice was so powerful at that time, such that its blast in the air announced a certain confusion, how much more do we believe that priestly voice is living now, which shows forth something magnificent when it speaks Christ in words? Or how could feeling creatures resist even uh, when even unfeeling ones were unable to endure the sacred dread? For we believe that the hearts can more easily be softened than rocks at the words of the priests, and that sins can be forgiven in a shorter time than those stones were split asunder. For the voice of the Spirit, when it comes, destroys the stain of sin more easily than it breaks apart a tangible fortification of rock. He's taking this passage and comparing it to the voice, the living voice, the viva voce of pastors who preach the word of Christ, who are then brought to repentance and their sins are forgiven. Good stuff from Maximus of Turin. Christostom also writes, he says, pay attention to me how strange was the preaching of God's love towards humanity. He who says in the law, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not commit prostitution, changes the commandment by clemency, and he proclaims to the blessed Joshua, let 
Rahab the prostitute live. Joshua, the son of Nun, says, let the prostitute live. Prefigured, this prefigured the Lord Jesus who says, the prostitute and the tax collectors go into the kingdom of heaven before you. If she must live, how can she be a prostitute? If she is a prostitute, why should she live? I speak about her previous condition, he says, so that you may marvel at her subsequent change. He asks, what did Rahab, to whom he granted salvation, do? She accepted the spies peacefully. Even an innkeeper does this. However, she reaped the fruits of salvation, not by speech, but beforehand, by faith, that her dis- and by her disposition before God. I am not out of place to point out that none of the preachers in the ancient church that we have their sermons from ever pointed to you know the 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 story of Jericho and asked the question what's your Jericho they never did that they pointed out the themes and the archetype of archetypal oh yeah, I'm messing that word up archetypal themes in this text the point is to the day of judgment and the judgment that we all face and they point us to the forgiveness of sins they point us to the forgiveness of sins because Christostom says the same God who said you shall not commit adultery and the same God who said you shall not commit prostitution commands the prostitute to live and she's saved when she points puts that scarlet thread outside of her window Now, we don't have a scarlet thread literally to stick outside of our window, but we have this, the blood of Christ shed for us. This we have, the blood of Christ that washes away our sin so that God can then command a sinner like you to be saved, and it's a command. That's exactly what it is. It is a command when you are brought to repentance and faith in Christ, even though your sins be as scarlet. God commands you to live and to be saved the same way Joshua commanded Rahab the prostitute to be saved and to live. This is what's going on. In the story of Jericho, this is the grand story and you get swept up into it. It isn't directly about you, but you cannot help but see the implications for you. The themes are all there. To do what Mark Batterson did with this text in his book, The Circle Maker, is to show that he's spiritually blind, that he doesn't get it. That he doesn't understand for him to make this about you the way he did it is to miss the whole point this story is about the yeshua who saves who commands prostitutes to be saved and if he can command a prostitute to be saved he can command you to be saved because on the day of judgment he sends forth his angels with the with the trumpet blast to gather his elect not for them to face destruction, but for them to live and to live with him eternally. All of this by the shed blood of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is what the story of Jericho is all about. This is good news. This is something to be grasped onto, 
to cling to with every bit of energy that you have. This is the promise, the promise of your own salvation on the day of dread, on the day of judgment, on the great day of the Lord God Almighty when Jesus comes again with glory, on the clouds of judgment to judge the living and the dead, because his armies are encamped around Jericho right now, and I mean our planet. And one day, there will not be silence but there will be a trumpet blast, the shout of the archangel, and the sign of the one who was pierced coming on the clouds to judge the living and the dead. And you will either spend eternity with him in his favor and eternal life, or you will spend eternity literally smoking out of the pit, out of the lake of fire drinking to the dregs the full fury of the wrath of God for your sins. This is what you've earned. Repent and be forgiven. God commands prostitutes to be saved. He can command you to be saved. This is what this text is about. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We come back, we have a fantastic lecture by Albert Moeller entitled The Lamb Who Would Be King. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <laughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> you'll scream. <laughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. 
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. This is our normal sermon review time. It's not a sermon, but it's a good, oh man, Christ-exalting lecture. I'm going to do this right here. Hang on. the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon's actually a lecture by Dr. Albert Muller of um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This is from the 2010 Resolved Conference, and the name of his lecture is The Lamb Who Would Be King. In a very real way, Dr. Muller here is addressing the shallow, sentimental, false Jesus that has uh, become pervasive in much of uh, the visible church. And uh, he takes that false Jesus away and puts the real one right where he belongs. It's amazing. It's a good lecture. You're going to enjoy it and be edified from it. So without any further ado, let me kill this. Uh, without any further ado, here is Dr. Albert Muller, the lamb who would be king. I have a plan to solve all the world's problems. All of them. I have a plan for world peace. A plan that will bring an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Bring lasting peace between North and South Korea. Accomplish world peace. Make peaceable nations out of Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. Solve the global economic meltdown. Resolve global warming. This is an obvious problem experienced while we've been here. <laughs> Domestically, my plan will end the culture war. Streamline government, clean up bureaucracy, cut taxes, rescue the economy, revitalize the arts, enhance national security, ensure personal happiness, fill every pothole. You know, it came to me one day that the answer to all these problems was staring me right in the face, literally. I can solve all these problems. Just make me king. Seriously. I mean, you're hurting my feelings. This is, this is supposed to be when you applaud. And yeah, thanks, 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 thanks. that's right. The answer to all of these problems was staring me in the face as I shaved in the morning. Just make me king. And I don't mean just king over some little principality or, or nation. I mean, I mean global king. 
I could solve these problems. I guarantee you. I'd do it humbly. <laughs> and, uh, and I would do it kindly. I, I, I don't want to be some kind of constitutional monarch. I, I, I mean, it'd be swell to have your, your picture on a coin and a stamp and cash and... That'd be great. And uh, I, guess, I guess life wouldn't be horrible being trotted out on state occasions like certain other constitutional monarchs we know. This only works if I'm an old style king. I mean, like an off with their heads kind of king. Uh, divine right of kings king. I wanna put the potency back in potentate. You, you, just, you just give me the opportunity and I will solve these problems. I'd be a good king, I promise. Really, I mean, I, I, would, I would rule with righteousness. Uh, I would avoid the obvious problems. I wouldn't be Henry VIII. I love the one wife I've got. Yeah, no need for six. I wouldn't be Ludwig of Bavaria. I need to go building all those castles. And of course, he got deposed and mysteriously drowned just a few days later. That's not good. I'm not going that way. Uh, I would not be Ivan the Terrible. I wouldn't be terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't be Napoleon Bonaparte. But you got to say, if anybody knew how to king, I mean, that guy had style as king. And, uh, and I love the fact that when he was coronated, he got frustrated and simply took the crown and put it on his own head. Now, that's when you know you're king, when you crown yourself. Yeah, top that. I wouldn't be Louis XIV of France with Versailles and that palace with all hundreds of rooms. I don't need hundreds and hundreds of rooms. Dozens will be fine. I don't, I don't need hundreds. I wouldn't be incompetent like George III and like lose America. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be a much better steward than that. Uh, no, I, I have in mind the kind of monarch that historians talk about like Frederick the Great of Prussia or Peter the Great of Russia. Hey, Albert the Great. I, I like that. I think I would aspire to that. I, I would mean well as I ruled. I, I, I would do well. Now, let's just admit something. You've had the thought before. I mean, that is the human conceit. You just give me the power and just give me a few days. I can solve these problems. Yeah, filibuster this. Yeah, off with your head. I mean, there, if you're going to put the potency back in potentate, you're going to have to make it count. And, and time is brief. You never know how long you're going to be on the throne, so you've got to clean things up in a hurry. And, of course, the conceit is further that if, if you did give me absolute power, I, once I solved all the problems, I'd uh, give it back, retire. You ever notice how that never happens? There isn't a king... An emperor, a shah, an emir, a sultan, a prince, who's ever accomplished what he sets out to accomplish. And no, no human king has ever been able to bring world peace or resolve all these problems. No human is competent for this. Let's admit it. The reason you don't want to give me absolute power is because you've read Genesis 3. 
And you got a pretty good idea what happens when a sinful human being gets too much power. On the other hand, both history and scripture suggest that there are worse things than having a king. Anarchy is worse than monarchy. Anarchy is not good. God has indeed given kings and governments, as you read in Romans chapter 13, in order to establish order. It is a gift of his grace. It is his kindness to his sinful human creatures in that he he gives kings to rule over us and presidents and prime ministers and governors and mayors because we desperately need order. We're pretty sure we need a king or something like a king. We Americans don't call our president a king, but we surround him with the trappings of monarchy nonetheless. But no king, no prince, no president establishes a lasting kingdom or fulfills all of our hopes. And we come to the end of the day And all the kings sleep in tombs, and their kingdoms always fall. We've been talking about how to rescue ourselves from superficial understandings of Jesus. The great temptation to us is that the Jesus we will worship, the Jesus we will know, the Jesus to whom we will pray, the the, the Jesus whom we trust is going to be a sentimental Jesus of our imagination and not the Jesus of the Scriptures. We desperately need to be rescued. And the only means of rescue is Scripture. And we need to understand the totality of how the Scripture presents Jesus. And as the church has tried to understand this, one of its clearest understandings has come to be focused on the three offices that are fulfilled in Christ, prophet and priest and king. All three of these, central and crucial to the Old Testament, and all three of these, infinitely, perfectly, fully fulfilled in Christ. As prophet, he did not and does not merely speak on God's behalf. He is God in human flesh. He reveals the Father to us, not in the sense of merely speaking for him as God speaks through him, but as he was the word become flesh, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As priest, he accomplished for us the perfect sacrifice for our sin as the high priest who was not merely a representative, but the high priest who was himself the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant made in his own blood. He was not merely there our sacrifice, but he was our substitute. And as priest, he ever liveth to intercede for us And the very fact that we are here and alive today is due to the fact that he is interceding for us. But Christ is not merely prophet and priest. He's also king. 
In order to understand this, we have to look to the Old Testament. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Solomon at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. Israel here demands a king. And as Samuel makes very clear here, as God speaks through him, as we shall soon see, it was God who, who claimed the right to be king over his elect nation of Israel. Other nations had human kings. The other peoples of the earth had human monarchs. They had pharaohs and princes and kings, but not Israel. Israel had judges. Its king was God. But Israel was jealous of the other nations. Israel surveyed the other nations, and they were jealous that other nations had kings, kings they could see with their eyes, kings they could see on a throne. Kings who would promise and pledge and lead. As Samuel is coming to the end of his days and his own sons, and by the way, he should not have appointed his sons judges. But he did, and as Samuel now comes to the end of his life, the elders of Israel come to him and they demand a king. And God says to Samuel the most amazing thing. He says, obey the voice of the people. They are not rejecting you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And at the end of the text we just read, as you come to verse 9, God says to Samuel, you tell them, however... If they ask for a king, they better be very careful what they ask for. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons 
and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Give us a king. This is Israel being envious of all the nations around it. And, and even as we think about that, let's, let's, just, let's just remind ourselves the, the kind of people that Israel appears here to be envious of. These were the most crackpot nations on the planet of the earth. These were ten-pin monarchs of desert nomadic peoples. We're, we're, we're not talking here about the envy of Versailles and, and Buckingham Palace and, and, and the Kremlin. We're talking about the envy of little ten-pin monarchs who spent most of their time knocking each other off and the rest of their time stealing from their own people. And Israel here is the chosen nation of God. They have been given all that their gracious heavenly father would give them. They've been given a a land flowing with milk and honey. They've been given the gift of the law. It was to them that God spoke at Sinai and to them alone. They were ruled over not by sinful human monarchs, not by little tin-pin potentates, but they were ruled over by the sovereign of the universe who held them as his own personal possession. And yet they were envious of other nations. They wanted a king. They want a king that can see. They want a king that, that is accessible to them, to their eyes. And for some reason that is explained only by the grotesqueness of human depravity and self-deception, they wanted a king so that they could be like other nations. God did not intend them to be like other nations. That was the whole point of Israel being his own personal possession, his own holy people, his own nation. He would rule them by his love through the covenant that he made with them. He would be ever faithful to his promises. He is omnicompetent. 
And Israel would not have God as their king. And when the elders of Israel went to Samuel, God said to Samuel, it's not about you. They will not have me as king. But if they want a king, you make sure they know what they're getting into. Samuel calls them together, and he had a little come to Samuel talk. He said, you want to know what a king looks like? He's going to take your sons. He's going to enlist them in his army. They're going to be pulling his chariots and running ahead. They're going to be his servants. You ready to give your sons? Get yourself a king. Oh, but it won't stop with your sons. He will take your daughters. And don't you love the way it's put here? Doesn't this make you wonder what in the world was going on in these ancient monarchies? Well, you do. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Ready to give up your sons? Ready to give up your daughters? Get yourself a king. Oh, and he's going to take the best fields because being a king only works if, if you can get what you want. And, and that's exactly what kings do. Henry VIII famously saw Hampton Court Palace, and he said, I want it. The cardinal who built it could only give it to him. The king had him killed anyway. That's, that's what kings do. Oh, oh, and the king's got to demand a tithe, a tenth. It's got to be the best tenth. He'll take your servants the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll put them to his work. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And then amazingly enough, as you look at this passage in verses 19 and following, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. In other words, he gave them the absolute truth about what a king would mean. And they still demand a king. No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, you know the Old Testament. It doesn't go well. I was walking on my campus one day and came across a young man and the course of the conversations that I was talking with him, it was clear he was, he was about to become a father. And uh, they, they knew that the baby that was about to arrive, their firstborn, was going to be a son. And uh, I said, what are you going to name him? He said, well, we're going to name him, we think, after one of the good kings of Israel. Well, let's see. Maybe Hezekiah? Yeah. Josiah? Go out on a limb and think maybe David? The list is really short. There aren't that many good kings of Israel. And, and even those kings had grave problems. And in some cases, a very short reign. The fact is that what the Samuel warned them about took place over and over and over and over again. At kings like Ahab and Manasseh, Jeroboam and Jehoiakim. And even some of the kings that, that got so close to greatness 
ended their reigns in utter humiliation, Solomon. I guess what comes most immediately to my mind in that respect is King Uzziah. The king that was honored by God with such tremendous military victories and such national greatness for Israel, who violated the law of God. Remember when we were looking at Jesus as the great high priest? We mentioned that in the Old Testament, no one man was to hold more than one of these offices. King Uzziah decided in a moment of arrogance that he would act as a priest. And when he assumed the role of the priest, God struck him with leprosy. And from that moment on, he was cut off from his people. The catastrophe of Isaiah was, was so remarkable that when Isaiah speaks of his call, there in Isaiah chapter 6, he says it was in the year King Isaiah died. A horrific indignity to one of Israel's most potentially great kings. He said, I saw the Lord, and the Lord was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah, who was closer to kingship and to the court than any other prophet, knew that Israel had traded this for that. As you read the Old Testament, you come to understand the limitations of kinghood. You come to understand that kingship doesn't get you very far. Genesis 3 applies to every single king who is a mere mortal, frail and feeble, and even in their greatest ambitions, they are merely human. They can deliver only so much. But as you also know your Old Testament, you know that in the midst of Israel's experience... God told them that there would be another king coming. There would be one of David's line. There would be a Messiah who would come from David's royal lineage. He would assume the throne of his father, David. And of the language used in the Old Testament of this coming king, there is Israel's reminder of what they had demanded and what they got. And yet what God now promises them beyond what they could imagine. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Beginning in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Israel wasn't asking for this king when Israel's elders went to Samuel and said, give us a king. 
we will have a king. We must have a king to rule over us. But God in his mercy, after Israel had plenty of experience with the kings they demanded, said, I am sending a king. There is yet a coming king. And you look to David's throne and to David's line, and one day there will be a Messiah king who sits upon that throne. And of his government, there will be no limitation. I will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His throne names will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a greater than David. The government will be upon his shoulder. These throne names were never spoken of David, nor of any other human king. When Jesus Christ was born, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi who came said, where shall we find this baby who was born king of the Jews? Jesus spoke of himself as a king. But he made very clear that even as his kingdom had come with him and that in his coming, the kingdom of God is at hand. When he would speak of my kingdom, he made very clear in his incarnation that his kingdom is not of this world. In John chapter 18 and verse 26, as he replies to his accuser, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is at hand. But you can't reduce it to an earthly kingdom. You can't fit this monarchy into your human conceptions. Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross that had a sign at the top that said, King of the Jews, because Pilate instructed that it be so. And the Jews came to Pilate and said, say instead, he claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate said, it is written as it is written. Jesus spoke over and over again of his kingdom, of the kingdom of God. He made very clear that it was not ruled as earthly kingdoms are ruled. It is not regulated as human kingdoms are regulated. It is not valuated as human kingdoms are valuated. When we think of Jesus as king, we are not thinking of an earthly king blown up large or an earthly king made complete, we are speaking about God's definitive answer in bringing about his rule of who really is king. And his name is Jesus. Now, most Christians who know anything of the Bible, who've read the Gospels, and know anything about Jesus... Know that Jesus is king. I mean, the fact is that if, if we know almost any of the songs, if we, in the old rejoice, the Lord is king. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. So much of the new music, there's reference to Jesus reigning, Jesus the king. And yet, I really fear that most Christians 
have a very tame and domesticated understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Begin reading at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay, children, let's gather together for Sunday school. Here's the coloring pages for today's Sunday school lesson. (laughs) Oh, those are birds pecking out the eyeballs of kings. <laughs> Color inside the lines. You want to show your parents you did a good job at Sunday school. Come, let me tell you a story about Jesus. He's riding a horse. He's got blood all over his clothes. He's coming, and he's not happy. <laughs> this... This is not what happens. Instead, what we have is, is, is what's true. We, we have Jesus saying to Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kum, get up. We have Jesus healing the man blind from birth. We have Jesus saying to the children, let them come unto me. Yeah. Jesus saying to his disciples and to those who could hear his voice, come unto me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's Jesus. But this is too. 
Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens are two of the four horsemen of the, uh, of the new atheism. They, along with Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, have really pioneered this movement, which has reinvigorated atheism here at the beginning of the 21st century. And, um, you know, sometimes you need to read the opposition in order to understand the issues that are right in front of you. And some evangelicals would do well to read what Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens have to say, because here's one of their arguments. They say, you know, you know, there are many people who seem to think that the Bible presents this very judgmental God of the Old Testament and this very non-judgmental Jesus. <laughs> Richard Dawkins writes, hey, I've read the book of Revelation. And I got to tell you, I think Jesus kills more people than Yahweh. You understand the cynicism in his voice, but you also understand, well, he actually did read the book. He actually does know that there is no distinction of character and purpose between the Father and the Son. My will, Jesus said, is to do the will of the Father. And any theology that presents this vengeful, judgmental God of the Old Testament versus this sweet Jesus of the New Testament doesn't understand how sweet Jesus is, nor how gracious is the Father to send him to save us from our sins. But if you think the Bible is all sweetness and light, you don't understand God. You do not understand his holiness. You do not understand the scale of the human rebellion with which he has been faced. You do not understand what took place in Eden, and you do not understand what took place in human history, and you sure don't understand what takes place in your own heart. A rebellion against the sovereign creator. We are all guilty of infinite treason. And if you thank God... And his holiness is going to let history dribble out to an end with his enemies having the last word. You hadn't read the Bible because there is a last word, and that's not it. You come to Revelation chapter 19, and let's face it, let's just look at each other in the face and admit this this is tough stuff. In the providence of God, that master expositor John MacArthur earlier took us to Revelation chapter 1. So much of the imagery we find here in Revelation chapter 19 is already revealed in Revelation chapter 1. Here we have the Jesus who appeared to John in his vision. And we have John writing down what he is told to write. And by the inspiration of God, this is the inerrant, infallible word. He has spoken to us, and he has told us that when Jesus comes, well, when we considered what it meant for Jesus to be our great high priest, you remember how that text ended? That this is a priest, the mediator of a new covenant, who is coming a second time, not with reference for sin, but to claim his church. Well, that's not 
the end of the story. He's also going to pour out the wrath of God upon sin. Jesus does not step out of the way and merely observe as the Father pours out his wrath upon sin. Jesus is the agent of the Father's judgment upon sin. And there is no text that so classically reveals that to us as does Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open. Heaven is opening and there is an army coming. And behold, the one who leads this army is riding a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. You already know this is Jesus. And in righteousness, what is it going to say? Why did Jesus come? Why is Jesus coming? Did anyone ever tell you that he's coming to judge and to make war? His eyes are like a flame of fire, symbol of judgment. And on his head are many diadems. You'll know what a king looks like. Imagine a procession that starts out with heaven opening. And one crown won't do. Many crowns. I love this. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. As you read the letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus says to the the one who overcomes, I will give him a name, a secret name known only to him and to myself. And so what was given to those believers who overcame and endured to the end, they were given this secret name known only to themselves and to Christ. But when Christ comes as the agent of the judgment of the Father, he comes with a name only he knows. you got to love that. We don't even know what it is. But... If the names that are given here aren't enough, I'll tell you the truth. That's a name I don't need to know. That's a name I don't want to know. That's a name that is going to be disclosed to his enemies as he is destroying them. I don't want to know that name. Nor do I want you to know that name. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's not, again, this isn't, this isn't Sunday school for children. This is the word of God to the church to tell us that the Jesus who is coming to exact the judgment of the Father is coming with his robe already blooded. And when did that happen? When he was on a cross, and he wears bloody garments as he returns, the name by which he is called is the Word of God, the Logos. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. They also are wearing the chargers of royalty. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, just as we saw in Revelation chapter 1. This is judgment coming from the very mouth 
of the Savior. He comes with a sharp sword. There is no dull place on it. It comes to exact justice, this sword that is in his mouth. It is a sword with which he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. A statement of absolute unconditional sovereignty. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You see a winepress? Go to the Near East, you'll still see a winepress. Generally circular and made out of hewn stone. And the, the grapes are put there in this vast circular vat. And a great stone wheel comes and rolls over the grapes. And from openings at the bottom of the wine press flow blood. The justice of God is going to look like a great cosmic wine press. And into this wine press will be put the nations. He cuts them down with the sword that comes out of his mouth. He crushes them with a rod of iron. He places all of his enemies and treads the stone of the winepress of the Father. On his robe and on his thigh as the king would, would ride upon his charger, his Thigh would be that which was most apparent when the horse would come up alongside the enemy in time of war. What was written on the thigh would be the insignia, and the insignia of the man, the one who rides this horse, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, let's be honest again that picture, if it ended right there, would be horrifying enough. And if when you hear and read these words, a certain tinge of horror does not enter your heart, you're not hearing what this text is saying. But the text doesn't end here. There's more. There is an angel who appears standing in the sun, radiance behind him. And with a loud voice, he calls to whom? To all the birds, the birds of prey, the scavengers that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for what? Gather for what? The great supper of God? There are two suppers in Revelation chapter 19. This is the second. The great supper of God. These birds are called to observe to eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains. The flesh of mighty men. The flesh of horses and their riders. But it's not just that. It is every sinful human being who never comes to Jesus Christ 
never has sins forgiven, remains the rebel against the Lord Most High, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. There's no distinction here between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free. All of the rebels against God are destroyed. And I saw the beast, this one, who so consummately represents opposition to the sovereignty of God. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, he too, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. It will reappear very quickly in the judgment that is coming, this lake of fire, because everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is thrown into this fire. Kings, captains, mighty men, slave, free, small, great. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Jesus will reign. Jesus is king. And all this royal imagery is a reminder to us that God will vindicate his name and will demonstrate his holiness and will satisfy his righteousness and he will pour out his wrath upon scoffers, rejectors, deniers, unbelievers, enemies of the cross, persecutors of the faithful, those who murdered the martyrs, the subverters of his truth, those who attacked and rejected his church, those who perverted his gospel and seduced his people, the devil, Satan, demons, the beast. All of these will be destroyed. The ark enemies of God. But not only they, also the small as well as the great. The victory of God in Christ over sin and death and the curse will be fully revealed and all will be defeated. There will be war. This is the one who rides a horse who comes to judge and to make war. And all of this is a reminder to us that history is not headed toward some indefinite end, but under the sovereignty of God is headed towards this. But as you think of Jesus the King, and as the kingship of Jesus comes in this horrifying picture, a picture which we are given by the grace and mercy of God so that we will know it and we will fear it, I want to remind you that we began reading at verse 11. Please turn with me to verse 6. I mentioned there was a second banquet, a second meal in Revelation chapter 19. This is the great supper of God where the birds are called to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, horses and riders and all men, both free and slave, both small and great. But there is a first supper, a first banquet. In verse 6 we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, we've been here for for several hours together these days. We have come from far and near, many young, a few old, a few really young. There are a few thousand of us in this room. Just imagine, from all human history, from creation until now, all of humanity, every single person who has ever lived or will ever live is going to be at one of these two meals. You will either be clothed in fine linen as part of Christ's glorified and perfected church, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, or you're going to be a part of the great banquet of God which ends with birds who have gorged themselves on flesh. And that is not even the end. For as the very next chapter makes clear, there is a judgment that will make death look sweet. The dividing issue, the defining issue here is indeed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The lordship, the priesthood, the prophethood, the kingship of Christ, these are all going to be demonstrated in these two meals. For the ones who are at the marriage supper of the Lamb are those who have been purchased with a price. It will be those who are, those who by God's grace have been brought into that better and more perfect covenant, the ones for whom Jesus Christ is the mediator of that covenant, the ones who have come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, who have professed that belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and have believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They're the ones who trust Christ alone and have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they are those who are at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will be there with saints and with martyrs and with Jews who were saved by the blood of the Lamb and with Gentiles drawn from all the nations of the earth who were saved by the blood of the Lamb, and we will be there to worship King Jesus, for King Jesus is a Lamb, but he's not a Lamb who merely lays in the field. He is a Lamb who wears a crown and carries a sword. 
He is the lamb who is king. And he will be king. And no one can stay his hand. He will be king of your life, king of your body, king of your loves, king of your mind, king of your imagination, king of your ambitions, king of your temptations and your struggles, king of your faith and your doubt, king in your heart, king in his church, king in the world, king in the entire cosmos. He is king. And he will rule. Now, for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this should come as a great confidence. We are not left in this as the ones who are to accomplish Christ's work. He's going to accomplish this work. He has called us into his church by his grace and for his glory, and he has given us tasks, but he will get this done. He is the one who will ride the white horse. He will have an army with him, but it is he who is faithful and true, and it is he who has the sword coming from his mouth, and it is he who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It is he who will lead the judgment of God and effect it in the winepress of Almighty God. And it is he who, as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, rules his church with mercy and grace, and love, and demands nothing less than to rule everything we are and everything we ever will be. It should be a great confidence to us because the church gets to see this reign and confess this reign and celebrate this reign and know this reign and experience this reign even now. As Christ reigns in his church now, and we see what is coming, and we can wait because the day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single human being who lives or has ever lived or will ever live is going to be at one of these two meals. May you who are here in this room or by any means hear these messages, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and trust him and be found in him and be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. May Christ reign in his church so gloriously that we can live or we can die until we get there because we know he is king. And because he is king, by his grace, we will be there and all will be well. May the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be strengthened in this. And may the enemies of Christ hear the warning. The king is coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for revealing to us the truth of Jesus Christ, your Son, in your word. Father, we look to the Old Testament and are reminded of what it meant for Israel to demand a king, the wrong king. Father, may your church exult in King Jesus. 
And Father, even as we are humbled, even as we are chastened by the knowledge of the coming of this King who will judge, Father, may we find infinite comfort in anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we pray that because we have been here, we will be so emboldened with and by the gospel that we will share it so eagerly that by your grace, we will see others who join us at that meal. And Father, until then, we can live or die safe because Jesus Christ is Lord, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.